Well, friends, not only has today been a lot of fun and been enjoying being with you today, but last week was just a hoot. I found that it just lingered with me for a number of days into the week, just reflecting on what a great, enjoyable celebration we had uh, last Sunday. Uh, but then as I was reflecting coming towards this Sunday, what I found myself going is like, I came and went too fast. It was like boom, boom, and it was here and it was gone. And, and I thought, I, I just don't, I'm just not ready to to step away yet from the, um, from the events that we'd been considering throughout that entire week. And um, so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to do something kind of like they do in a football game. You know, in a football game, when a guy makes a play, whether or not he stepped out of bounds, whether or not there was a foul committed, whether or not they actually got a touchdown, what do they do? They, they do a replay and they go to a slow motion camera. Well, that's kind of what I like to do. I like to turn on the slow motion camera on one little spot of something we looked at last week because it just was like zoom and it went right on by us. It's like, let's back up, slow that moment down and consider something with a little bit more depth than our thinking allowed us to do, our time allowed us to do last week. So with that, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. We've been spending these uh, last couple months, and we'll continue to spend, just by identifying places in the Gospel of Mark, that um, he has something to say to us. And so we've been looking at, at his Gospel. Mark chapter 15, picking it up in verse 37. I want to look at, if you will join me, with at one momentous moment... A point in time that is literally, eternally world-shaking. This one moment in time. And as we go through it in the Easter season, boom, we go right by it and didn't even have time to stop. Mark chapter 15, I want to read three verses, picking up in verse 37. You will understand we're near the end, that, that moment when Christ dies on the cross. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out, uh, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Three brief verses that when we read, we tend to just read and go, okay, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, and we keep going. I want to back up, slow it down, and say, let's pay attention to a couple things. Because there's, in that one momentous moment, three things we have described for us, all of which are significant. That moment when Christ breathed his last. In one momentous moment, Christ demonstrated his power. He demonstrated his power. That may seem a a little bit contradictory. It's like, hey, the guy's dying here, Gary. What do you mean he's demonstrating his power in this very moment? Friends, can I remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ, throughout the entire events of that week, and up to and through his crucifixion, he was in control of everything. There was never a moment when this thing escaped him. He's kind of going, well, I, I feel like I'm, I'm losing control here. I'm not sure what's going on. I'm a little bit worried that, that things aren't as I planned. Never happened. He was always in control. 
This won't come on the screen, but I want to read for you in Matthew's account. We're going to touch the other gospel writers. Here's what Matthew said. When, remember when Judas came to him, kissed him, in order to identify him as the one that they were to arrest in the middle of the night as they came out with it to him, greet him with, with clubs and means of uh, being able to constrain him? They came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Now, this is one of the ones who said, we'll, we'll defend you to the end, Lord. We're ready to die with you. He drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide with me more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scripture be filled that it must happen thus? Jesus says to Peter, says, look, don't you realize I'm in complete control here? Don't you understand that if I wanted an end to come to this, all I need to do is call out to my father. My father is able to send the angels, able to destroy these guys. I have all the defenses of, of all the powers of heaven at my fingertips, at my call, at my command. I'm not calling them intentionally. This isn't getting out of control here. You don't have to worry. Put up your sword. It's all right. Not fun. But all right. So that's the picture we have from Matthew that Jesus doesn't stop what he could stop because he is letting it unfold. And when Jesus, notice what Luke says, when Jesus has cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Notice how John puts it. He said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It's interesting, isn't it, between Luke, John, and Mark? They'll give you just a little bit different, not, not contradictory, but just a little bit different take. There's, there may even been some other things that were said that um, they're not given to us right here, but each one, as God as God inspired them to write, said some aspect of what Christ said on the cross at that moment. And so Mark doesn't tell us what he said with any specificity. Luke says, into your father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. John says, Jesus said, it is finished. He said all of those things. But what is common to all three of them is this. He breathed his last. Having cried out, he breathed his last. Having cried out with a loud voice, he breathed his last. He says it's finished, bowing his head. He gave up his spirit, John says. What does that indicate? And all of that indicates Jesus in full, the full faculties of what was going on, in full control of the moment. What they're trying to communicate to us is that Jesus was in complete control of the moment of his death. And he chose when he left this world. He chose when the breath left his life. He was the one who determined the moment of his own death. This was so unusual that he, had, that he died, and we'll see something else relative to it when, the, when we see how the centurion responds to that. But his death came earlier than would have been expected. 
Because it was quite possible to linger on that cross literally for a matter of a day or two or three in a most excruciating, slow, brutal execution. But when the work that he was accomplishing was done, Jesus said, I'm done here, I'm out of here. And notice in verse 44, Pilate marveled when Joseph of Arimathea came asking for the body of Christ. Here's what Mark tells us. Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion. He asked him if he'd been dead for some time. He's kind of like, well, wait a second. We just started this thing this morning already. This thing is done. That's way too soon. These guys normally last longer than that. And he's got to get some kind of confirmation from the centurion that was there going, hey, what gives here? That's an interesting little take, isn't it? What gives here is that Jesus was in control every step of the way. And when he said, it's time for me to be done, when he said, it's finished, when he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he left. And said, this thing is over. In one momentous moment, Christ demonstrated his power that he was going to control his own death. It looked like It looked like that he was a victim at the hands of the religious leaders. It looked like that he was a victim at the hand of Pilate, who the religious leaders pressured him to kill Jesus, even though he had done nothing wrong. It looked like he had no control whatsoever. His his, uh, disciples decided he kind of lost control. They all ran and they all fled. It looked like everything in this scene looked like he was completely out of control and he was completely victimized until he says, I'm leaving now. Thank you, Father, I'm coming. And notice they all indicate with a loud voice. See, usually what happens at this point is they just kind of, their strength drains from them, from the victim of crucifixion. And Christ still has the power to proclaim what it is he wants heard. And then he gives it up as he chooses to give up his breath. In one momentous moment, Christ first demonstrated his power. Second, in one momentous moment, Christ accomplished his purpose. Matthew 26, which we read just a little bit ago, when they cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, he said, put up the sword. They that die by the sword, or take, live by the sword, will die by the sword. Did you notice the last comment that he made there? He said, I can, draw, I can call all the angels. He says, but how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen Thus, there was a purpose that was unfolding on that day. And Jesus allowed, as he was in perfect control, but allowed them to come take him in order that he might go to the cross. He allowed all of that to happen because it was fulfilling a purpose. A purpose that God had intended and to which God had spoken at least in human understanding all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve first took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's why Christ said, let it happen so that the scripture may be fulfilled. This is why I have come. My purpose in being here, as somebody has observed, they reference Christ lived his life backwards. All of us are born, we do all our great things, and then death steals from us our ability to do our great things. Somebody has observed Christ's life was lived backwards. Okay? He was born, he lived his life, but the great thing he did, the fullness of his life, came in his death. Death didn't rob him of his purpose of life. Death fulfilled the purpose of his life in order that he might die on that cross for all of us. 
In one momentous moment, Christ accomplished his purpose. And it's the tearing of the veil that indicates that Christ has accomplished this purpose. This purpose in order to make a way that we can now have access into the holy creator's God of the universe's presence. Because prior to that, we had no real access into the presence of God. You say, Gary, well, how, how do you say that? Why do you say that? Hebrews says that. Because Hebrews describes what was, what was taking place prior to this moment. And Hebrews gives us insight into that veil that we read was torn. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, as we slow it down, we realize when we pick up on that phrase, it came from top to bottom. Heaven itself, God himself has torn the veil. God himself has done something with that veil. Well, what's so significant about that? I'm going to take a little bit take, uh, from Hebrews chapter 9. And you'll see this on the screen. Hebrews chapter 9. And let's consider this. Indeed, even in the first covenant, it had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Now, this is going to take us all the way back to Moses and the people of Israel when they came out of uh, captivity. And God said that they were to build a tabernacle that he might dwell among them. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, and this second veil is the one that's referenced here where it was torn from top to bottom, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. These things we cannot now speak in detail. So he just says, he just gives this brief picture. But we need to understand he's, he's outlining here in the book of, of Hebrews. He's outlining, he's giving us the floor plan of that tabernacle. And he references that tabernacle is of the old covenant. That tabernacle is of what came, what was there before Christ was on the scene. And it's, it's real simple, friends. They always entered the tabernacle whenever, this was a movable place of worship. And they always oriented it so when you walked in, you can only come in from one direction. You always came in from the east. Always. They didn't just look for a nice place of ground. They always oriented it so that you came in from the east. Now, I think there's a reason for that. I think it goes back to the garden. That's my own little personal thing. When God drove them out of the garden, he drove them out the east end of the garden and put a cherubim there. Says, you don't have access back to me. You don't have access into my presence. And now this reflects that, that as they seek to approach God, that uh, there are some things that are preventing them from truly getting into the presence of God. So they would come into this outer court, there's sunlight above, and the priests would bring in sacrifices, and there's some other things that are out there. Just this general area around the tabernacle. Then they stepped into the structure, which is this tent-like structure, and there was a curtain that they first had to get past. And as they got past this curtain, they entered into the first room, which is twice as big as the second room. And in this first room, called the sanctuary, in this first room, they have on their left-hand side, right over here, will be a lampstand. And on the right-hand side is a table, and on the table is going to be 12 loaves of bread. 
And those loaves of bread are going to represent the tribes of Israel. And as you look to the far end of this room, you're going to look at a veil, a very heavy veil. Immediately in front of the veil, there's going to be a table that has incense burning on it. That incense is relative to what takes place in the veil once a year beyond the veil. So it's identified with that in the book of Hebrews, though it sits just outside of it. That veil, or or excuse me, this first room, the priests come in on a regular basis and they light the lamps and they, uh, they put bread on the table. They make sure the incense is still burning. They can do that in that first room. The second room, they could not go into with any great regularity. In fact, once a year that we are told that once a year they could go in to that second veil. Notice in verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests also went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. That was common to them. But into the second part, that is beyond the veil, where there was the ark, there was this gold mercy seat, there were these angels. God said, I will meet you on that mercy seat. Once a year now is when the high priest would go in, place blood upon that mercy seat. Said the priest, let's see, pick it up in verse 7. Into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, Not without blood, he had to first have cleansings for himself, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. So we got that. Daily ministrations in the first part. Then there's this veil with one annual ministration in the second part that dealt with that mercy seat and blood being placed upon it. Once a year only would they go in there. You got to get that in order to understand what's happening here. Because in order to get there, they have to go by this second veil. And it is this second veil that we're having reference that was torn. They couldn't, verse 7 again, into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now, here's what we want to understand now that we know the floor plan the Holy Spirit indicating this. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Year after year they were reminded that having been driven from the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, mankind still cannot just walk back and be in his presence Mankind, because of sin, is still separated from God. And the only thing that allows for even a working relationship that God might be in their midst was that it had to be done through a priest. It had to be done through all these proper washings. And it allowed for the reality that, yes, God is here, but he is completely unapproachable yet because we still have a sin problem and we are still separated from him. And there's this very real time element that Hebrews is talking about that says... um, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Getting past that main veil, that second veil, it was not, the the opportunity to get past it was not yet brought forth until that magnificent day when Christ was crucified and heaven tore open the veil when he said, he cried out with a loud voice, And he breathed his last. He committed his spirit into the Father's hands. And he he cried out that it was finished. At that moment, heaven then having indicated that the way now has been made, tore the veil for us and separated so that now God can be approached because entirely of what Jesus Christ has done. 
Whether you picked up on it or not, there were some magnificent uh, lines in one of the songs that we sang as we worshiped this morning that said, the gates of hell will not prevail because the power of God has torn the veil. This is that veil between the first part of the sanctuary and the second part. And you could not go past that except on the pain of death, literally. And so they only went once a year and only the high priest. But now access has been made. So Christ accomplished his purpose and having tore the veil open to say we can now come into the presence of God. Now what I would like to just remind us with also from Acts chapter 2 verse 22. Now it is only going to be a matter of a couple of weeks following and the disciples are going to begin to catch on to the magnificence of what Christ has done. And they will, have, they will have encountered the resurrected Christ. And they will get it that although they ran that night, Christ never did lose control. Christ did accomplish his eternal purpose, his plan. And the first message that is being preached in the church is being preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 2, where on that day the, the Holy Spirit of God came down and it anointed the people who were believing at that point. And others are going to come to faith because of this message that Peter preaches. And as, as he preaches, there are people from all over who have come to Jerusalem for the Pentecost. And they're hearing the message in their own languages. And so God is doing this miraculous work at that point. And they don't understand. How can we all understand? We come from different languages. But somehow we're all understanding you guys as you proclaim this message. And Jesus then clarifies one thing for them very clearly in the middle, or Peter does, in the middle of his message, um, Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Do you notice what he does? He calls them, he says, look guys, we're not trying to tell you anything you don't already know. You were eyewitnesses to this guy and what he did. You saw that the blind were made to see. You saw that the mute spoke, that, that the deaf heard. You saw people raised from death. You saw the miracles which he did, as you well know. Him, this same one who was doing these miracles, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He said, this one whom you saw do all these miracles, that's the same one that you killed and you know it. And he holds them accountable to that, to remember that. He says, you've put him to death whom God raised up. That's what we celebrated last Sunday. Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. They're saying, how does all this happen? It happens because the one whom you killed, who was doing all those miracles, that one who you put to death, God raised him up because death itself cannot hold him. Do you get it, guys? Do you get it, Jerusalem? Do you understand what's taking place here? 3,000 of them came to faith that day. But in the midst of that statement, Peter says something very significant relative to what's happening on, for our text. He said, Him, Christ, being delivered, verse 23, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Peter says, this was God's eternal plan all along. You delivered Him. You killed him, you crucified him, you sent him to Pilate, you pressured Pilate to make sure that he die on the cross instead of Barabbas, the one who was really guilty. You did all of this, but guess what? You were simply fulfilling 
what God had determined all along, when back in Genesis chapter 3, he said that the seed of the woman would suffer a bruising on his heel. And that bruising took place that day. He, of course, will crush the serpent's head who bruises him. But he says, this is all part of God's plan. It's been part of God's redemptive plan since the beginning of time. So that's why we slow the camera down, friends. That's why we're taking it through the slow-mo camera today to say, number one, he demonstrated his power in that one momentous moment. Number two, he accomplished his purpose. And number three, he revealed his person. Isn't it interesting the way the centurion was impacted by what he saw? When the centurion, who stood opposite him, saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last. It's what he saw that brings him to say what he says. When he cried out, when he still had the strength, when he clearly was in control of his circumstances, the centurion has callously watched Person after person die in crucifixion. This was nothing new to them. This was another day at the office for them to put somebody to death through capital punishment. That was nothing new. There was just something different that took place at this moment. And it was so different that the centurion had to step back and go, what just took place here? He should have lingered and lingered and lingered until eventually the life ebbed out of him. Or because the Jews don't want to have these bodies hanging on the cross for the, uh, during the time of the Passover, we'll probably have to come in and accelerate his death, which they did with the others. And he looks, he goes, this guy just chose his moment of death. And he still had strength in him. And he was in control of every moment. And the centurion who was used to watching people die was so moved by what he saw, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. He gave testimony, there's something different about this person whom we have killed today than anyone else whom we have ever put upon the cross. This was the Son of God. So the slow-mo camera reveals three things. In that one momentous moment, Christ demonstrated his power, accomplished his purpose, and revealed his person It's like one last time. That's kind of how I see that. One last time he's going to show who he really is before he leaves. Because remember how he said, Peter said in Acts, you know, the guy who did all these things in front of you, which you clearly saw, you you crucified him anyways. It's like Jesus says, here's just one last little indication, guys, that I am who I am. And he so impresses the centurion that he testifies as to who the person is. Of Jesus Christ is. So, what does it mean for us? Well, Hebrews, in another part, actually gives us a direct application, and we're not going to go into great detail on it. Maybe one day we will. What do we, where, do we, where do we walk away with this then? What does this do or mean to us? Hebrews chapter 10, we have this magnificent passage. Therefore, brethren, we'll pick it up in verse 19, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That holiest is that place beyond the veil. 
That holiest is where we can now go because God himself has ripped the veil and given us access into his presence. That's where he said he would meet with them at the mercy seat. And now by ripping the veil, he has said, my eternal purposes and redemption have been fulfilled through Christ, and now there is access into my presence. Therefore, brethren, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil... And then he takes it to here. That is his flesh. I mean, the tearing of the veil was one thing. But the writer of the Hebrews says also it was the real veil was his flesh that was torn. That is what gave the access. That veil that covered, his flesh covered the reality of who he was. The veil was slightly opened up, if you will, not torn, but opened up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember when James, John, and Peter had the privilege? Only three. They saw Christ, and he became bright as light, and he spoke with Elijah and Moses, and they were having revealed to them the future kingdom and how God was at work. Well, how did that brightness come out of Jesus Christ? The veil of his flesh was allowed to if you will, uh, disseminate or became translucent, however you would call it, so that this glory that is in him actually now began to shine forth to reveal without any doubt that he was indeed God incarnate. And this flesh now, this is what has been torn. This is what was crucified. The tearing of the veil here is simply symbolic that the tearing of the veil here has been accepted and has been effective. And having a high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The first thing that, that the writer to the Hebrews tells us is this. What do, we, what do we do with this magnificent reality? Number one, draw close to God. A way has been made into his presence now with, through this magnificent work that Christ has done. Make it your number one priority to become close to God and to allow him to do a work in you. Allow his presence to be revealed in you and to transform you, to transform me, to do a work in our lives. And why? Because he who promised is faithful. Never waver on this. Never give it up. Never abandon this truth. The one who has made this way through the veil of Christ's flesh and exemplified by the tearing of the veil that allowed them to go to the inner part of the tabernacle. This one is faithful. And so do not waver on this fact. And in talking with Caden this morning, I had mentioned, I, I, I don't know, maybe other things get promoted like this, but how many of you have heard a promotion for a TV show tonight, which I hope to watch, given the time, uh, Who is God? Any of you see that? Anybody? I'm the only one. Okay, Deb, you saw that. Okay. Morgan Freeman is doing this special. Who is God? Okay, I want to tell you something, friends. I guarantee you there will be people who are, their faith is shaken. Their faith is shaken because he's going to reach a conclusion which is not biblical. I know from something that he said this morning. He's not coming to a biblical conclusion. If he is, I will 
I will apologize publicly for that. But from what he said this morning, he's not coming to a biblical conclusion. And you know what? For some believers, that's going to be hard. Oh, he said something here, and we're going to be shaken by it. And, and Hebrews says, don't be shaken by anything, okay? Because you know what you know. You know who Jesus Christ is. You know what he has accomplished, an eternal purpose. He is the only one we need to cling to without wavering because God is faithful and God is continuing to do his work. And God will transform us, and God will continue to redeem people. And the gates of hell will not prevail because the power of God has torn the veil, as we say. So we don't need to be shaken by whatever conclusion Morgan Freeman reaches. Number one, draw near to God. That's number one. And then he says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the days approaching. Draw near to God and, when you, and, and then come into fellowship. Be intentional about being in fellowship with people of God because we need each other. Friends, I don't know one believer I've ever met who does best by always being in isolation from other believers. Sorry, God's created the body. We need each other. Got to have it. And others need us. So he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And when you come together, here's some things you ought to consider. Stir one another up first to love. Is that what identifies us? Wouldn't that be magnificent? If we were known as a place that whoever walks in, love is what they see. Love is what they experience. Love is what is, is given to them. Love is theirs. Doesn't mean we always have to qualify. Doesn't mean we say everything goes. We're not saying that. That would not be loving, to be honest. That would not be the least bit loving to say everything goes in everybody's life and every behavior. No, we're not talking about that at all. That's a different discussion. But we're to stir one another up to love and good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. That's kind of a cool little thought. When we realize that God had foreordained that Christ would die on this cross, that he would redeem us, that he draw us to himself, and then that whole foreordaining thing, he said, and, and by the way, those whom I draw to myself through the death, burial, and resurrection of my son, I now have things I foreordained for them that they might go out in good works, be my presence yet for another generation, for another people who are in darkness and need the light of my love and my grace. And I have things for them to do, and we are to encourage one another to walk in that, to seek that, to pursue that. What are those things which God is calling each of us to do? Friends, if I could, just in a nutshell, um, I hope you're starting to save things for a garage sale coming up in a couple months for a trip to Vienna. Our Vienna team will be meeting here. We'll be introducing them to you at some time in the near future. This is why we send people to Vienna, right? Because we believe God's calling them to go and to be present and to come alongside of believers in Vienna who need some encouragement and to minister God's word and the gospel to these young people through English as a second language. That's just one. That's just one of the things and how we encourage one another as we stand with each other, as God calls them to go to different places. And it could be they go to a place on the other side of the world. We got young people who are out now. We got more who are going to be going. It could be something like that. And it could be nothing more than, guess what? We got, we got um, 
We got the man cave meeting tomorrow night, and then this was the week that the, that the women will be coming together. And guys, bring somebody with you. We have an outstanding teacher in Chuck Todhill. He's doing a great job. Bring another man with you. That's a good work that God will be pleased. Who does he lay on your heart to say, not only should you go, but bring someone with you. Ladies, you're going to hear the end's testimony. Come hear it, but more than just come hear her. Bring another woman with you. Reach out to somebody else in love and grace and kindness. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, there are other women out there who are hurting. You think you're hurting and lonely? You're not the only one hurting and lonely. Uh, Ladies, I know. I know. Because I'm talking to them. Isn't that exciting? God says, hey, in light of all that we've heard and all that we've seen, he says, one, come to me. Come to me. Get to know me. Let me be effective in doing a work in your life. And then number two, move out from there and love others and do things that are going to be effective for them coming to know me also. How exciting is that? Father, thank you. Thank you that there was that one momentous moment when your eternal purpose was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When the way back into your presence was made. And Father, how magnificent that you, you call us, you invite us to know you better as you desire to pour your love into our lives. And then you invite us, Father, to reach out to others with that love that they too, that they too might find grace and hope and joy in you. Oh, Lord, thank you for that magnificent privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.